Psalm 110, found on page 951 in the Pew Bibles. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle. Arrayed in holy splendor, your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook along the way, and so he will lift his head high. And so, Lord, would you bless the preaching and teaching of your word. Instruct us, feed us, we pray. In your holy name, amen. This is a little bit more of a teaching sermon. I want to tie some things together from this psalm about the king and the kingdom. And so we're going to start this morning in this way. I'm going to tell you a little story about something that happened this past week. And if you stay with it, I think you'll see how it ties in with this um, psalm in a minute. It was before Christmas one of these days this past week, and I got a voicemail. I listened to it between meetings, and it was um, from my bank. Gina, this is Janelle calling from such and such a bank. If you could give me a call back at your earliest convenience, my number is such and such. Thanks, and have a great day. Well, I don't know about you, but um, I don't necessarily really like to get phone calls from my bank. I wonder what's up. And um, anyway, and then I think, oh, they probably want me to, you know, get a a credit card with a certain, you know, percentage of interest rate or, you know, like something like that. So I just kind of disregarded it. But I thought, well, I better swing through the um, bank. And so at about five to five, like I wasn't allowing any extra time. I didn't want to get trapped in one of those conversations or anything. But um, I stop in and um, visit my banker and say, um, hi, Janelle, Gina Dick, you gave me a call today. And she says, oh, I'm glad, I'm glad you came in. Um, there was an overdraft in your checking account. And um, anyway, I'm sitting there thinking, this was not on my plan today. And um, anybody? <laughs> and so, um, and right before Christmas, and so uh, she tells me there's going to be an overdraft charge and so forth. And You know, there was a payment made, and did we authorize a payment? And so I quick text Dane, did we authorize a payment? And anyway, and he says yes, and I say yes. And um, so anyway, so in short order, we moved a little bit of funds around, and she said we'll dismiss that that overdraft charge. And uh, I said okay, and I didn't understand what was happening, but I went home, and Dane's like, you know, that text, what's going on? And I said, well, we had an overdraft. And, um, and so we sit down for dinner, and it was a very quiet dinner because <clears throat> the week before, we had gotten a phone call from our um, credit card company that they had noticed there was this charge, and was this charge, 
you know, something we, it was 99 cents, so it was little. But they said, this is really out of the ordinary. You never had this, and um, it wasn't anything we had authorized. So our wheels are turning, like, is there fraud going on? But how could it affect our checking account, you know? And so it was a very quiet dinner. So I'm cleaning up the dishes afterwards, and Dane thinks about that they have this customer service number that you can call. So he picks up the phone, and he calls customer service for the bank. And he's talking to them, and um, they're going over, like, different checks and so forth. Well, there was this check, number 1524, check number 1524. And instead of them deducting the amount that that check was written for, they took 1524 and added three zeros or something like that on the end of it. Friends, the little bit of money I transferred over was not going to take care of what had happened. Praise the Lord that they discovered that this accident had happened and that they could take away the charges and that they could set things right. She had the authority to do this. And so what we needed was somebody that had a position of authority. We needed someone, this customer service, to mediate between the rules because the rules are very simple. Money in, money out, you know. It's very simple rules, but we needed somebody to kind of advocate for us and look at the rules and look at what was happening and bring some justice into this situation. All right? So we needed authority. We needed a mediator. We needed someone to bring justice. Well, friends, financial things are a big deal, but spiritual, eternal things are a bigger deal. And we have... Each one of us has had a need to have a relationship with someone who's in authority, who can mediate and bring justice in our lives. Because, as we know, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so in this psalm, it starts out and says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Sit at my right hand. Sit in this position of authority and honor. Well, who is David saying that God is going to say this to? The Lord says to my Lord. Well, this particular passage is quoted in all these different places, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, in Acts, in Romans, in Ephesians, in Hebrews. And in every single one of these circumstances, in every one of these places in the Bible, this passage, the Lord said to my Lord, is talking about Jesus himself. In Mark 16, the high priest asked Jesus, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the place of power at God's right hand and coming on the clouds of heaven. So Jesus quoted Psalm 110 when he gave the answer to confirm that his identity was actually the one that David had prophesied about that would sit in this position of power and authority. And the Lord said, The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, so it's God himself saying, I'm going to extend the scepter, your authority, from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. 
And so Jesus was going to sit in this position at the right hand of God the Father, and from this position, he was going to rule on earth and cause his enemies to be subdued, right in the midst of the enemies. And so Jesus was going to, he gives the command from heaven, and his followers are the ones that actually bring about this um, extending, going out in concentric circles from Zion to cover the entire earth. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. What in the world does that mean? Your enemies a footstool for your feet. Well, if you remember, we've talked about this before, that in the Old Testament when somebody was conquering an enemy, quite often they put their foot right on their head or their neck. Very graphic, very physical, but you get the idea. It's kind of like in wrestling, who's on top, right? So... Enemies a footstool. This is a picture of that. The enemies being made a footstool for your feet. And in effect it's saying Jesus is in the process of setting all things right. And anything that comes against the peace and the goodness and the love of God's kingdom is going to be conquered as if a king was putting his foot right on top of someone's head or neck. So we see Jesus is the ruling king in these first three verses, verses 1 to 3. And then I want to shift and look at the end of this in verses 5 to 7. Okay, so we see Jesus is the ruling king, and then Jesus is coming as the warrior judge. The Lord is at your right hand. He'll crush kings on the day of wrath. He'll judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. Hmm. I want to ask two questions. Why is Jesus coming to judge the living and the dead? Well, the answer to that is he's going to put God's enemies under his feet, and he's going to then hand over the kingdom of God back to his Father at the end of time. We get that from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So Jesus is in the process of getting, he's already won the victory on the cross. But it's kind of the mop-up operations afterwards, the clean-up, finishing up the job. And then he's going to hand over the whole kingdom so that the Father God can be in all and through all and in all. All right? And then I want to ask the question, is it being a warrior judge compatible with the idea of a loving, gentle shepherd? Because we certainly emphasize that loving, gentle shepherd all the time. And so... In some of our minds, we might say, this doesn't really fit with what I was imagining Jesus to be like. But I want to say it very much does if we think about what a shepherd does. A shepherd loves and cares for the sheep. But his, his approach to a lion or a wolf is very different than the way he treats his sheep, right? Anything that comes as a threat to disrupt that little sheep the shepherd's going to treat differently. And anything that is against God's kingdom, any enemy that's against God's kingdom, he's going to judge appropriately for the protection of his creation. Jesus is all the more wise and all the more loving than any shepherd, any parent, any authority figure that we've ever experienced here on earth. The best of the best, Jesus is greater than that he's got more wisdom and he knows how to parse it out 
who is who is that that he's to protect and who is that that actually and what is that like demonic that's actually an enemy of the kingdom of God and so a mama bear don't get between me and my cubs all right this is the ruling warrior that comes and says anything that is going to be a threat I'm going to deal with so this is really good news But it's also really bad news if we think about this. Like, the bad news is we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. And so the really bad news is that we all have had individual sins. We've sinned and we've done things that we shouldn't do. We've told lies. We've cheated. We've, um, we've, you know, dishonored people. We've also sinned in ways that maybe we didn't act, but we actually failed to act. So maybe we've sinned in ways like this, that we should have um, kept our word and made that phone call because we said, I'm going to call you, and then we didn't. Or maybe there was this um, opportunity to share something that we had, and we didn't share it, and we were prompted to do it, but we didn't do it. Friends, no matter how good we are, we think we are, we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And then as, an, as a community, we've fallen short of the glory of God because love always trusts and always hopes and always protects and always perseveres, and love never fails. But when we have problems like racism, we recognize that we haven't always loved and we haven't always protected and we haven't always trusted. And so it's affected us in our relationships in such a way that our culture is affected by it. We're affected by consumerism, greed, in ways that, like, we just aren't satisfied, and that's sin. And then we've got global sins. So we've got national sins. We've got global sins. We we have fallen short, and the wages of sin is death. We've had individual sins. We've got corporate sins. And this is really bad news. Every single one of us, if justice was served, we would be the ones that we would think would be under his feet in the footstool, the one that he was coming to judge. But there's this little piece in here, in this psalm, that is so beautiful, kind of right in the middle. And it says, Verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Well, if you read that, you can just gloss right over it, but it is rich. Because it's reminding us of the good news of what a priest does. I want to say the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The wages of sin, the the payment for sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And how does that payment for sin get made? It got made through a priest. In the Old Testament, the priest would go and make payment, make atonement for sin. Well, Jesus did that once and for all on the cross for us. And so that, friends, is the really, really good news. And so who is this Melchizedek that is referenced that Jesus is similar to? It's an Old Testament 
priest, king, and he, his name means king of righteousness, Melchizedek, king of righteousness, and he's from Salem, which is the place of peace. And so Jesus would be a priest, king, one like Melchizedek, who would be totally right, and he would come from a place of complete peace. And that is who would rule. Melchizedek was a prototype, a type of, a picture of this one who would be even greater than Melchizedek. God's decree to Jesus, you are a priest forever. Well, what does a priest do? A priest would bring in the sacrifice and make the payment for sin. Well, what did Jesus do? He brought in himself as the sacrifice, the one who died for our sins, and he brings this gift up to the throne room of God and sits in the right hand of God, and he makes payment. And God says, you're going to do this eternally. What you've just done is going to last through all eternity. And so there will never have to be another payment for sin because Jesus just paid it once for all. He's that priest that represents us day in, day out, year after year after year, sin after sin that we still sometimes slip into. As believers in him, we still fall into sin. And he sits there and reminds God, I've paid for that. I've paid for that. I've paid for that. If you believe in Jesus, he's sitting there making atonement, reminding God, you're at one with this person You're in relationship with them because of my payment. Jesus does that for you. He does that for me. Each one of us who call on his name and believe that he is our Lord and Savior. He's the Christ. What a beautiful thing. It gives us a different picture of justice. You see, justice would mean money in, money out. You've got a debt, you've got to pay it, and we can't ever pay our debt when it comes to sin because it could only be a faultless one, a blameless one that could make that payment. And none of us could have ever done it. And yet Jesus lays his life down, and he pays the the price for our sin. Friends, wake up. Wake up right now and listen to that good news. Jesus paid for your sins. And he sits there and he reminds the Lord. And what else does he do? He sits there as a sympathetic high priest, Hebrews tells us. One who has been tempted in every way as we have. And he, he represents us to the Lord and then he brings back from the Lord to us. And so Jesus is the mediator. He's running interference, so to speak, in our relationship with the Father. All right? And so... Jesus is watching everything you're doing and he sees your needs and he's praying. He lives to intercede for us. He's in this throne room with God and he's praying for us. He sees your need. Vic, he sees your need. He knows you need a place to live. Jesus is interceding for you. He knows what your financial needs are. He knows what your spiritual needs are. He knows what your emotional needs are. And Jesus is in this place of authority, and he is mediating. 
He's running interference, just like that bank customer service person ran interference for us. Jesus runs interference for us, and he's, he's bringing our needs before the Lord, and he's also bringing kingdom resources and sending them to earth through the Holy Spirit. Jesus is our eternal king and our eternal priest. He's perfectly just, and he's graciously merciful. I sat and I thought about, what does this mean for me? And I tell you, it was rich. And I hope that you'll do the same over this next few days as we turn the year to spend some time thinking about what does it mean that Jesus is my eternal king? And what does it mean that Jesus is my eternal priest? Knowing that he's king and he's got all authority, for me, I thought about this, it means this for you too, that he's over any enemy that I have. He's stronger and bigger and more authority. And so I don't have to fear any enemy. He's dealt with sin and my sin problem, and so my sin problem doesn't have to control me anymore. Knowing that Jesus has all of his enemies under his feet, and that's where they're all going, gives me hope when I watch the news. And night after night, I watch this terrible news that's happening, and I think, what is going on in the world? And there's so much wrong, and there's so much evil. And yet I have hope in Jesus, because he's that king who's in authority. I have hope and joy when I'm convicted of my sin, because all of a sudden I feel like this is God's graciousness to me. Jesus is sending grace to me to convict me of my sin and to cause me to trust that it's already been paid for and I can just bring it out onto the light and I can turn from whatever that is. Noon prayer on Wednesday, we're praying and all of a sudden I felt the prompting of the Lord to say, you know, justice would be in this situation where you had a little difficulty with an extended family member years ago. Justice would be that, yeah, you're right. Like, in principle, you were on the right side of that decision. But yet, that hurt their feelings. Oh, gracious mercy would say, I could write a, a note of apology and say, you've put this on my heart, and so therefore, I'm sorry for any way that I offended you. And I, I love our relationship, and I'd like that to be reconciled. And I didn't have to feel um, condemned by it because Jesus wasn't condemning me. He was sitting as the high priest, helping to reconcile, to bring things back into, because the whole goal in the end is this shalom, this peace. Things all set right with every relationship, with every situation, things set right. There's many, many more revelations, but those are just a few as I thought about what does it mean for Jesus to be the eternal king and the eternal priest. And we're looking at God's kingdom, and we have a role in it. And David told us that a thousand years before Jesus was born, and now it's been 2000 and almost 18. I think last week I said it was already 2018. I've been getting ahead a little bit. But anyway, for all these years, David looked ahead and the Holy Spirit showed him that we were going to have a role because it was already decreed and prophesied says, verse 3, your troops will be willing. Your troops. There was relationship. He didn't say the troops. 
your troops. Do you realize that we're these troops that he's talking about? Those that follow Jesus? We're going to be willing. What are we going to be willing to do? We're going to be willing to do whatever the Father's will is. We're going to be listening, and we're going to be listening for whatever it is, wherever the paddle is, wherever the day of power is. Verse 3, your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy splendor. So we're to be willing, and we're supposed to be covered and equipped. Or in the English um, Standard Version, which I actually preferred for this one, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. We're supposed to be dressed representing the Lord and remembering the prodigal son and how the father put the robe on him. We're supposed to be covered in such a way from the kingdom of God that we represent our father who's in heaven and we're to be willing and ready to do whatever it is that he wants to do to try to bring peace on earth and goodwill to men. And so these verse 3 and verse 7 have these, and I told you this is a teaching, but... Stay with me. Listen to this. It's kind of interesting. Verse 3 and verse 7, people, translators, interpreters, just haven't been able to quite figure out what it is they're talking about. And yet these are the climactic parts. It's like verse 1 through 3 is building up to 3, and 4 through 7 is building up to 7, and 3 and 7 they kind of struggle with. What does this mean? Because they refer to things like water, And they refer to clothing. And what is that talking about? Well, I'm not saying that I'm the expert biblical interpreter. But it did occur to me, and I Googled it, or not Googled it, but I looked up in my books. And um, these are all images that the Bible uses for the Holy Spirit. And so water, the dew or the brook, the dew, water coming down from the sky to make wet or saturate, the brook giving drink to give strength, And then the clothing, the holy garments or arrayed in splendor, they would be clothed in holy garments. Remember, Jesus said, wait until you've been clothed with power from on high. And so I believe this mediation work that Jesus does, and don't we know, and the creeds teach us that the Father and Jesus sent the Holy Spirit. And so the work of the Holy Spirit is part of Jesus as king and as priest and bringing about his kingdom purposes on the earth. And we see this in Acts. And it's very interesting. It says here in Psalm 110, Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. And as Pastor Dave and I made the discovery that actually where we're going next in preaching, starting with Acts, in Acts 2, they quote these last two psalms that we've preached on, in Peter's speech, in the same order that we've preached them. And we didn't know, and we didn't plan it that way. It is really cool. Friends, I believe the Lord's with us in this. I just want to say, the Lord's teaching us about the king and being people of his kingdom. And that's what we're going to be studying in the weeks and months ahead. But this is what Peter says as he stands up. Remember, Peter was the one that was all shy and he denied Jesus and yet clothed with power from on a high. He had received that, that gift that had been sent. And he says this to the Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. 
but he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, Jesus, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For God did not ascend to heaven, for David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, he's quoting Psalm 110, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they, say, they said to Peter and the others, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins. And Peter spent much more time pleading and explaining. And what was he drawing on? He was drawing on the fact that Jesus was king he could settle the account. He had the authority to do so. And he was priest, the one who had brought the sacrifice. And he was pleading, don't you see, Jesus is the king. Jesus is the priest. And if you only believe in him, your sins will be paid. And you'll have the gift of eternal life. And what happened That verse 3, your young men, new believers, will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. 3,000. 3,000 believed on that day. And do you know that we're praying for revival? Do you know that we've been praying for revival? That we've been praying that the priest in heaven would send the Holy Spirit and that the people would hear the good news that their sins have been paid for and there's reconciliation and they can have a relationship with God the Father who loves them so much that he sent his son to die for us? He did it then and he's done it in the past year and he's going to continue to do it. And even today, he's saying to some of you maybe, come back to me. And to others, maybe he would say, believe on me for the first time. Put your trust in me because I've done this for you. And for the rest of us, what's he saying? What is he saying? What does it mean for you? And what does it mean for us as a church that Jesus Christ is ruling king? That he's our eternal priest? And that he's our coming judge? What do you face in your life? where this is really good news. What do we face as a congregation that we need to hear this word today, that he is the coming king, he's the ruling king, he's the eternal priest, and he's the coming judge? Why do we need to hear that? What is the Lord saying to us through this message? Friends, last night I couldn't come down on one thing. And this morning I got up still restless in my spirit and feeling like I believe that the rest of this message is going to come through you. I believe that he wants to give us a word of encouragement. I believe he wants to give us some direction or some understanding, some nugget of how this applies to you, 
to us. And so I'm going to pray for that a minute, and then we're just going to listen to the Lord. So, Lord, um, I thank you for your word, and I thank you that it's alive and it's active. And, Holy Spirit, I pray now that you would show us what this means for each of us and for what it means for us as a church that Jesus Christ is ruling king, eternal priest, and coming judge. And so, Lord, open our ears to hear what your spirit would say and bind all other voices in Jesus' name. Amen.